Welcome to Of One Heart, the podcast where we learn the life stories of members of the Anacortes Ward family. The mission of this podcast is to help us as Anacortes Ward family members to come to know each other and to connect with each other in richer and more meaningful ways. During the podcast, the hosts will ask questions that allow the individual being interviewed an opportunity to tell their life story. As we come to know each other and as we are willing to be known, our connections to one another will deepen and our shared quest to become of one heart and one mind will be encouraged. These interviews can also be used as a basis to start a life story to be shared with your own posterity. Good evening and welcome back to the podcast of One Heart where the Anacortes Award members share their life stories. I am the host, Brian Murray, and I am joined by my co-host, Christine. Hello, Brian. And this evening, we have with us Morgan Merrill. Hello. (laughs) And Morgan, we're going to start out with our Anacortes quiz, where I give you two choices, and you can tell us what your preference is. So, Safeway or the market? Safeway. Walgreens or Rite Aid? Walgreens. Sibos or Ace? Sibos. Pizza Factory or Village Pizza? Village Pizza. Donut House or the Store Grocery Muffins? Donut House for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've had more votes for the Store Grocery Muffins, but I like well, the Donut House. There's still time. Now there's there's still time <laughs> to get out and, and do some uh, campaigning for it. <laughs> All right, so we're just going to start uh, asking Morgan to just tell about where he was born and about his family growing up, his siblings and parents and the early years. So Morgan, just just start. I was uh, born in the wonderful town of Twin Falls, Idaho. My mother is an Idaho native. My father was actually born in Los Angeles, uh, but grew up mostly in Idaho so he was a game warden, so they called him the fish cop out in the area of Fairfield, Idaho, which I'm not sure if you've been there. There's not a lot of reason to go there. Very high desert. Uh, but his dream was to be closer to the Grand Tetons. That was, that, in my opinion, still, that's the best part of Idaho. So after I was about a year old, he finally got the opportunity to get transferred to the other side of Idaho. So we moved to the town of Swan Valley, which is about halfway between Idaho Falls and Jackson Hole. I was the second to last child. There were five of us. I had two older sisters, one older brother, and then a younger brother. Uh, My mother was a stay-at-home mom until I was in about fourth grade, and then she took a job in Idaho Falls. So When I was a young child, she was home most of the time, and when I was older, we relied mostly on each other to entertain ourselves in the afternoons until Mom and Dad got home. Dad, of course, came and went a lot. He was a game warden, and so he didn't have an office. He was sometimes home, and he sometimes wasn't. His office was his pickup truck, Mm -hmm. and um, he would often recruit us to go and pick up dead animals with him. <laughs> so got really skilled at cleaning up deer and moose. On the road. On the road. Yeah. Uh, mostly to just get that out of the view of the public. And I learned that elk, for some reason, in southeast Idaho, just don't come to the highway. But the moose love it. Huh. So Probably what, more detail than you so want. So what happened to those carcasses? 
I've actually always wondered this. They, well, at least in Idaho, the fish and game handles that, and their job is to just get it out of sight. Okay. So um, my dad always told me that the public usually believes that it's taken to a facility and disposed of. In reality, <laughs> it's just taken to a canyon somewhere. Um, so my dad had about five or six uh, places that he called them the graveyards, uh-huh. where he would dispose of dead animals. And every now and then he'd get a call, someone that would discover one of these graveyards, and he th- he'd say, Officer, I think I found a poacher's disposal site. There's all these big game bones in this canyon. And my dad would say, oh, I'll look into it. And then he'd say, yeah, that's just one of my graveyards. <laughs> so... Um, I was hoping that they made use of these carcasses, but I guess not. So they were usually unusable. Okay. There, I guess there was uh, a system in place where, uh, if someone had actually hit an animal and was fresh, they could obtain a permit fairly quickly mm-hmm. to then take the animal for themselves uh, as a salvage. But usually, by the time my dad would get to it, it was best to just dispose of it. Mm. <laughs> and the elk. They just were too smart, you think, then? That's what I assumed. There were a lot of elk around, but I don't remember ever. I'm sure my dad remembers, but I don't remember ever having to look after a dead elk. (laughs) Okay. Anyway. Okay. So that gives you some idea of um, what life was like living in Swan Valley in a place where there are a lot of big animals. One interesting thing about my childhood... um, is we had a very, very small house with one bedroom. There was a separate outbuilding with a garage and a larger room that was converted into a bedroom. So it was, with my family, it was like being at camp all the time. It wasn't unusual for us to all have bunk beds in the same room. Hmm. And I only thought that rich people had separate bedrooms in their houses. That To me, that was a rich person thing. Uh, we were not poor, but we didn't identify as rich, mm-hmm. and uh, just a small house and sharing bedrooms was what we thought was normal. So were you close then with your siblings because of that? I, I believe so. I think we were always very close, and I've always attributed it to the fact that we couldn't get away from each other. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't enough room to go and really have any privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, we... We spent a lot of time as a family seeking entertainment. So we went to Idaho Falls frequently to watch movies in the theater. We frequently would stop at Blockbuster Video and rent movies. And we also acquired a massive movie collection at home. So (laughs) uh, we were a movie-loving family. And interestingly, we watched them all with my parents. My parents participated in this. Uh So, uh, and they would take us to movies sometimes that were really quite questionable, but mom and dad were there. So, <laughs> so it was okay. So my mom would say, close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I really didn't have a concept of, oh, these are movies that are good to watch. These are movies that are bad to watch because we just did everything as a family. Mm-hmm. And the parents were always there to supervise and to point out, well, they do this in this movie, but that's really not what we do and it's just it's just a movie and then um eventually at one point my older siblings really got into scary movies and they used to give me nightmares and so my mom and i would retreat we wouldn't watch scary movies but then i became a teenager and i started liking scary movies Uh 
and my mom felt betrayed. <laughs> um, so were there any family favorites that you guys would quote all the time that you would watch over and over again? Many. Like, just give me a couple of Many. examples. Oh, one example would be The Goonies. Okay. Very, very, uh, very commonly watched and quoted. My mother had a thing for Gene Hackman. So there were a few Gene Hackman movies that were, pray, were played frequently. Uh, she also really liked John Wayne, but okay. none of the rest of us really did. So <laughs> we would try to veto John Wayne. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of others that we would watch all the time, but I, <laughs> Goonies is the first one that comes to mind. And with your father being a game warden, did you guys as a family go camping then? or We did. Um, my, my, of course my father had a professional background in the great outdoors, so he didn't believe in glamping. He didn't believe in going to a campground and having running water and having electricity. And he certainly didn't believe in trailers. No travel trailer. No. No Coleman travel trailer. That wasn't camping. (laughs) That's not camping at all. (laughs) So we would, it was pretty common for us to pack up the truck and go way up into some canyon somewhere and stay there for an entire week. Wow. Now, my mother would often, she'd take a few days, but then she'd go back to work and she'd join us in the night. But I remember lots of times just the kids, my siblings and I, and my dad just being out in the woods, just away from everybody. He didn't think it was camping if you could see other campers. So we'd have, we'd usually be in some canyon next to some running water or sorry, it's like a stream of running water. With maybe a graveyard down at the bottom of the canyon. (laughs) Probably near a graveyard, yeah. (laughs) Um, And we did that actually quite a lot. That was a lot of fun. It was fun to have campfires, and it was fun to just be out away from everything. And all the siblings joined in. They liked it. Yes. Oh, good. We had to have multiple tents because we couldn't all fit in one tent. Uh But it was fine that way. Yeah. It was like different than home because at home we shared the same room, but camping, you'd a little bit more privacy because you yeah. have a tent that you share with one person. <laughs> uh, did you then go into Boy Scouts uh, when you were a little bit older? Is that part I, of your I did, background? but that honestly, that wasn't a big part of my background. Um, we, we had a scouting program that was based in the, in the ward, uh, and it seemed like we had an activity every week, but the activity usually evolved into basketball. And... I don't remember anybody in the ward ever really going after the Eagle Scout mm-hmm. until another family moved into the ward and they were really, really dedicated to that. It was the first time I ever saw someone go all the way to the Eagle Scout level. Uh-huh. Um, but by the time that had happened, I had really lost interest. So I, I, I did participate in scouting, but I never really got into it. Did you go as a scout troop on campouts or not so much? Not so much. Okay. Um, the, the troop wasn't that active and I got, I personally lost interest. So okay. I suppose I could have, but I didn't. Well, you probably <laughs> learned everything you needed to know on those campouts with your dad. Yeah. You just uh, honestly didn't get the paperwork done. Right. I, I don't think my dad really cared that much about the scouting program. I don't, I don't think my dad saw the scouting program offering anything that he didn't already 
offer. So you were learning those skills from your dad. So I felt I was starting a fire and whatever, chopping yeah. wood and <laughs> pitching a tent and make sure the wood stays dry. Yeah, all the important <laughs> stuff. So uh, you lived there in this Swan Valley for your entire childhood, then? Yes. Okay. Yes. You went to high school at Swan Valley High? Well, no. Uh, Swan Valley has an elementary school, and it was strange because it was kindergarten through eighth grade, mm-hmm. which was kind of a strange arrangement. And then the school district had an arrangement with the Idaho Falls School District, which was about 45 miles away, hmm. where the the Swan Valley School District would would provide a school bus every morning and bus ninth through 12th graders out to Idaho Falls. 45 miles. Yes. That's a long ways to go. So an early morning, get out there to school, and then as soon as school's out, ride the bus back home. Um, however, so my, my two older sisters participated in that. They went through eighth grade at Swan Valley Elementary and then went on to Idaho Falls where they would do ninth grade at a junior high school and then 10th through 12th at Idaho Falls High School. By the time it got to my older brother, my mother was working in Idaho Falls, and so my parents felt deeply impressed to maybe bend the rules a little bit. And they started taking my brother to Idaho Falls as of seventh grade. So he finished sixth grade locally and then went to Idaho Falls. And that allowed him to participate in the band, allowed him to participate in sports. Hmm. He could only do that, though, if he rode in private car. The bus was not an option. But your mom was working there anyway. She was so working there anyway. Her third job. And um, myself and my younger brother, we followed suit. So I don't think I realized it at the time what that really afforded us because mm-hmm. the other students that lived in Swan Valley didn't have really any opportunities to participate in sports, extracurricular activities or clubs or any of those things that are options for all of the other students. And usually you'd find that by the time they got to ninth grade, they were already kind of, I hate to say it, they were behind socially. Joining in, joining at ninth grade, you've already missed all these potential friendships and friendships and relationships you'd have with your peers. So it seemed like it was hard for them often to mesh in with their classmates. And plus, the bus driver did not wait. I mean, it, you had, class would end and you had to get on that bus now or you'd miss it. Hmm. And you'd have to find another way to get 45 miles home. Hmm. I didn't have that problem. Um, so I was able to be in the band and play football and do track and field and that was a huge blessing to me. I don't think I realized it at the time. Yeah, that was. So, yeah. So, I didn't go to high school in Swan Valley. Okay. <laughs> and, and so, it looks like the Snake River goes through that area then, right through your town. Yep. Your, that was bike. a big part of my dad's job. Was the river. It's a huge fishing river. Okay. Uh, trout fishing, drift boat fishing. It's it's That's my favorite thing about there, actually. <laughs> Would there be uh, river rafting for you yes. guys, too? Not a lot of whitewater rafting, but enough. Just floating. Floating was, it was a lot of fun to do. Okay. I would have done that every single day if I if you could, if they pay me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Morgan in, as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, on a Saturday afternoon, 
after the chores are done, where where would Morgan be? Usually, well, we had 80 acres of land and we had horses. Okay. Um, and there's a large creek that ran through our property as well as a big ditch, an irrigation ditch that ran through it. It wasn't our ditch, but it ran through it. So Morgan would usually be out uh, wading through the creek or swimming in it or fishing in it or just wandering around daydreaming, fighting in some war that I had conjured up in my mind. <laughs> and the horses, <laughs> did you ride horses a lot then? We did. Okay. Um, the horses were trained as pack horses, so my dad would often use them for his job. Uh-huh. But we could also, they didn't belong to the state or the fishing game department. So they could be used for his job, but we also could use them on our own. So just we go out and ride them. So I, I never really got excited about just saddling up a horse and just riding him around the property. But we would, my dad would frequently take us with horses and we'd go on trail rides. Huh. And oftentimes there'd be even some overnight camping type trail rides. Now, were any of those 80 acres farmed then? About a third of them. Uh, so trying to do math in my head. One of the pastures we'd often keep closed off and uh, it had a, a high alfalfa count, so we would often have that uh, harvested for hay. And then the other two pastures were just open grazing for the for the horses. For the horses. Okay, but you didn't you didn't raise any crops on purpose. No, <laughs> no. But we could often get a lot of our own hay for uh-huh. the winter. But usually we'd have to get a little extra hay for the number of horses we had. And then high school years, what was that like for you? Any sports or clubs that you participated in? Yes, I was a football player. And I was kind of an unusual football player because I um, I had almost a 4.0 GPA. So I kind of got made fun of okay. for being the you're smart the, you football player. You were the nerdy football player. I was player. the nerdy football player, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair to say. Uh, I never really felt... When you're in high school and you say, oh, he's a football player, I never saw myself as that guy. Uh-huh. Um, but I did enjoy it. Well, I should say I, I really enjoyed playing football games. I hated football practice. I dreaded. I used to have nightmares about summer practices. So uh, when I graduated, as I was, I was getting, I started not graduated, but I was getting close to the end of my senior year, my head coach pulled me aside, asked me where I was going to college I told him, and he said, well, if you try out, they might take you on their team. And I instantly looked and said, oh, no, 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 I'm done. I'm, <laughs> I'm not. And what position did you play? I was a center. I was basically an offensive lineman, but okay. I spent most of my time at center. Okay. And I don't, I don't look like a center. I, I would have been destroyed in college. <laughs> um so football was a big part of life. In the spring, I was a thrower. I would throw discus and shot put, okay. and that was really fun. It was a lot more fun than football in a way because it wasn't nearly as hard. Yeah. Um, I also played uh, trombone for most of the time in high school. Uh, so music was always a big part of life there. Other than that, I remember high school being a lot of driving, early mornings, I remember a lot of highway closures in the winter mm. and missing school. Um, and then, of course, after school, there'd be a few hours before my mother would be off work. So there'd be waiting around and doing some homework and then driving home and then doing more homework. Uh, we were 
course, blessed to have seminary during the day, so I didn't have to be anywhere before 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. So you, you, dro- the road. you drove then from Swan Valley to... And what, what kind of work did your mother do? She was actually in... Um, she was often in healthcare. She worked as an office person at a hospital. She be- basically became a Medicare billing specialist, something with Medicare at, a, at the local hospital. Hmm. And then she had an opportunity to become the... Uh, office manager for a neurosurgical practice when a new neurosurgeon came to town. Okay. Um, so she was around healthcare a lot, which probably has an influence on my life later. <laughs> <laughs> she led you into medicine. Yes. So in those growing up years, um, what are some things that you that you that you learned from your parents, both your mom and your dad? Um. It's a good question. I feel like I've learned everything from them, but to be specific, I feel like I learned to not get overly excited about what other people are doing. I felt like we did a good job of minding our own business and not jumping to conclusions and not trying to tell other people how to live their lives. I know that sounds really specific. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a specific example but I just remember, I just remember feeling loved and cared for, but not pressured. I, I never felt like my parents expected me to do anything specific. I think they expected, and I felt like they expected me and my siblings to be good people, to be kind, but they never expected just as an example, I don't remember my parents ever telling me that I should go on a mission. I don't remember them ever telling me that I should go to college or they expect me or if I do, they'll reward me in some way. Mm-hmm. It they it just or you need to play an instrument or you need to play piano or you need to do this or that or you need to get good grades. Mm-hmm. That just was not ever there. Mm-hmm. Um so I guess that's kind of what I mean by I just never felt like we got rattled by anything because there weren't specific achievement style expectations. The expectation was to just be a good person. Mm-hmm. Hope that makes sense. It does. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a good family. Pretty well well grounded there. How would you characterize your uh, faith journey as a youth, a young as an adolescent? Well, you know, my parents were both active in the church. Uh, My mother was always the ward organist, so we were there just about every Sunday. And I always went to primary, I always went to Sunday school. And to be honest, I I never questioned it. I, I never felt like I had a reason to. I remember at some point in primary, I think I was talking to a friend at school, and I realized for the first time that this friend didn't go to my church. (laughs) I remember thinking, I've never seen him at church. Does he not go to church? And I think having a discussion with probably my parents, that was the first time I realized that, oh, there are different churches. It never occurred to me that that was a thing. Hmm. And I was fine with it. They kind of explained, well, not everyone goes to our church. Oh, okay. Whatever. I don't care. Um, I never questioned it. 
And as I became more aware, I began to realize, okay, there are a lot of people that have faith. And there are a lot of people that are even participating in religion, but they don't necessarily share what we have. And that's okay, but it didn't bother me. It doesn't matter to me. I've got what I've got and I mind my own business. It wasn't though until um, ninth grade when I started seminary that things really started to change for me. I know this isn't quite your question. No, this is my Oh, this question. is, okay. No, yeah. I'm thinking of it differently. Um, ninth grade, with my first year in seminary, I had a, this, his name was Brother Ellis. He was our seminary teacher. We were studying the Book of Mormon, which was a great place to start. And I had never read the Book of Mormon. I'd only read passages like when we were here. Why don't you read this? Okay, I'll read that. I never felt like there was a reason to read it because well, I don't. I don't question it. It's whatever's in there. I'm sure is true. I don't. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> um, and I couldn't quite put my finger on what Brother Ellis was talking about, but he was talking to us as if we hadn't been converted yet. Not because of anything we had said or done. He was talking to us as if you haven't gone through the process of conversion. And I thought, well, of course I have. I was baptized when I was eight. <laughs> I've been to primary and Sunday school, and I've, I've done all those things. I'm, I'm converted. I don't need to convert. I was born in the church. But he, not one-on-one not, not -on -one with me individually, but as a class, he made it seem like this is crucial. You need to know this, and you need to read this. And I thought, well, that's just completely unnecessary because I already know this. Um, and then the other thing he did was when we'd read in class, he would say, okay, take out your red scripture markers. Everyone, no exceptions. Take out your red scripture markers. And every time you see the word all, A-L-L, you circle it. Every time you see the word if, I-F, you put a box around it. Every time, no exceptions. And I thought, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to mark up my scriptures. That's ridiculous. But after a while, you got to hear it so often, you're like, fine, I'm just going to start putting a circle around the alls and a box around the ifs. It's just ridiculous. And I found, I found two things. For one, I found I, these stories were intriguing. I'm like, why have I never heard this story before? Probably because I've never read it and I wasn't <laughs> paying attention in primary. And two, well, hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm getting it way. I'm distracting myself. I apologize. Um, so I found, okay, I'm going to start circling these alls, boxing the ifs, and I'm going to read this. I'm, we're on a schedule, but I'm going to read it on my own schedule. I'm just going to read through it because these stories are actually kind of interesting. And as I'd read, I'd mark the scriptures just like he said. And I found that these alls took on kind of a dramatic meaning. Like we're not talking now and then, we're talking all. Like love with all your heart. Follow all of his commandments. And um, I read through the Book of Mormon. And I was blown away by what I'd read. I think, why have I never done this before. Mm. I can't believe I've never done this before. And I told my parents and they're like, well, yeah, why, what took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I read it again. I read it three times that year and it just blew me away. And I was like, well, I can't wait to read the new Testament. I can't wait to read the old Testament. And they're like, you hold read on. Three times in one year. I read the book of Mormon three times my, my freshman, freshman year. year. Wow. Wow. And then of course he tells us that you have to now go and ask if it's true. And I'm like, well, I already, I already know it's true. I don't have to ask. I already, I read it three times. Um, the funny thing is, is that he convinced me that I had to do it. So mm -hmm. I did. I went and I asked if it was true. And the answer I got was 
you already know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, I know, but I, my teacher said but my teacher I should. said I should ask. But that was a that was a life changer for me. Uh, even though I was the same person, I had never seen the importance of really looking into it because I thought, well, why? There's no reason to ask. There's no reason to know. I already know. At least I thought I knew. But when you actually read it and you learn these stories and you think of these concepts, it all of a sudden I fell in love with it. I thought, I can't believe I haven't really paid attention to this before. So I really think that that teacher was uh, put in my life at just the right time. Um, I had good seminary teachers after that, but it wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I consider that to be the time I was converted. Mm-hmm. I'm not a convert, but I was converted. Sure, we all are, right? Right, right. So a very impactful experience. Very. Yeah. So in, in your other, in your growing up years, you know, childhood and adolescence, any other impactful experiences that were, that, you know, kind of were turning points for you that, you know, um, impacted your life that you can think of? Yes. Um, you know, talking about, faith and church life, you know, that's where my mind goes automatically. Uh, one thing to know is growing up, I, I don't remember, and this may have happened and maybe my parents would disagree, but I don't remember ever having missionaries come out of our ward. It was a fairly small ward and it was a, it was a pretty aged ward, a lot of elderly farmers. And I, we never had missionaries in the ward serving, like full-time missionaries serving in our ward. And we, <clears throat> I don't remember, it, probably when I was a little kid, we had some, but I don't, I don't remember people going on missions from our ward. So I don't remember having the classic farewell sacrament meetings or the return missionary meetings. But every now and then when I got a little bit older, I started to notice that our bishopric would bring in speakers from our stake that were not necessarily in our ward. And we started to get some return missionaries that would talk about their missions. And I, 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 looking back, I think that's why. I think that they realized that our ward just doesn't have that. And I remember hearing these return missionaries talk about their mission experiences and just thinking, what? That, did that really happen on your mission? That's amazing. But I didn't know who these people were. I didn't know I was a kid and they weren't, I'd never see these people again. But what one thing that really impacted me, <clears throat> excuse me, um, was probably I'm trying to remember exactly how old I was, but we had the first real missionary leave from the ward. Um, I think he was a I think he was a kid that was my older sister's age, so about five or six years older than I was. And it was our first farewell talk. And, you know, back in those days, the whole family, the, the family ran the sacrament meeting. Right. And they would talk a lot about the missionary leaving and they'd talk about missionary work. And that just blew me away. I'd never been in a sacrament meeting like that before. And the things I was hearing were just, I, I, I can't remember what they even talked about. I just remember thinking, I'm excited for him. I'm really excited for him to go on his mission. He was going to St. Louis, Missouri, which to me doesn't sound exciting at all. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then I think after he'd been out a year, his younger brother had the same thing. And I think his first, so the first one was still on his mission. The second one comes along, has the same thing. And it was another wonderful meeting. And I, re- I just remember as a kid thinking there's a lot of really boring meetings, <laughs> but these were really good. Huh. And he went on his mission to Birmingham, England. And I remember feeling the same thing. I'm really excited for him. Like, I didn't realize he was such a cool guy. And now Hmm. I realize he's a really cool guy and I'm going to miss him. Hmm. And then a while later, his brother gets back. And again, we had an amazing meeting. I got to hear these amazing stories from his mission. And that was the first time that it occurred to me, oh, well, maybe I should do that. <laughs> Again, there was no pressure at home. Yeah. Um, my parents never said, you should go on a mission. I don't even remember. They probably did, but I don't remember them ever asking me, do you think you're going to go on a mission? Did, did your dad serve a mission? He did not. Okay. He did not serve a mission. And um, neither did any of my grandparents. Mm-hmm. I had some uncles that did, but that just never really came up in conversation. And I had some cousins that did, but that rarely came up in conversation. So I guess to answer the question, a real major turning point for me was seeing these sort of like peers. They're a little older than I was, Uh but seeing them leave and seeing them come back, it was the first time I realized that, oh, this is a real thing. I, we, we talk about missionaries in class, but I don't really know what missionaries are. I've never seen one. Yeah. So after high school, you started thinking about going on a mission then? Well, I remember th- thinking that and then going to seminary this freshman year. And that, that freshman year, I realized, okay, this is a big deal. I now feel like I have a concept of what this Book of Mormon is about. And that gives me a concept of what this church is about. And I... I have to go on a mission, not because I'm expected to, but I, I just have to go. Hmm. So I, so that was a turning point for me. So you knew that at a pretty early age then. Yeah. By ninth grade, I was pretty sure that, huh. oh, well, I get, yep, I'm going to go. And were your buddies in your seminary classes and at school and at church, were they also going to go on missions too? Or were you kind of blazing a trail for them? I, no, I, most of them, most of them had said they were going to go and most of them did. Although I got the impression that their upbringing was a little bit different and they just had been told their whole lives they were going to go. And so uh-huh. they, okay, yeah, when I turn 19, I'll go okay. because that's what we do. Yeah. Okay. But that's not how I grew up. I didn't grow up thinking when I turn 19, that's what we do. Yeah. So after high school, did you leave for a mission at that point or did you go to school, college for a while? I got a, um, I got a pretty significant scholarship offer. And in order to... Main, it was a four-year scholarship. In order to maintain that, I I believe I had to put in a semester. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly, but and I which decided. Which school was that? Idaho State University. Okay. And I decided to go for two semesters, and so I was already. I was almost twenty when I left on my mission. So I did a whole year of college first. And Idaho State is in which town? Pocatello. Okay. It's not too far away then. No, not that far. I, did, I really spread my wings and flew. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you remember getting the mission call and uh, In what fact, happened there? Yes. I actually got my mission call on March 26th, which was yesterday. Wow. It actually came in several days before that, but my parents didn't want to drive down and 
<laughs> they waited till the weekend, so I to bring it to you. Well, I drove up and they okay. We opened it up. I I wouldn't probably remember that, but I mostly remember that because my older brother got married the following day. So oh. today is my older brother's anniversary. <laughs> so I linked the two together. And that's how I remember what day I opened my mission call. And that's why I remember his anniversary. Otherwise, I, I don't remember my other siblings' anniversaries. <laughs> and then, so you got called to Germany. Germany, yes. Okay. Which mission was it in Germany? Berlin. Berlin mission. Wow, that must have been blown you away then. Yes. I had taken German in school. Oh, you're qualified then. But I was fully convinced I was going to Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> or St. Louis, Missouri. Or St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> Or Topeka, Kansas. Okay. <laughs> I just I knew I was going to one of those places. How did you feel when you opened that call? I almost Berlin? felt guilty. I, I wasn't going to say this, but um, I'll say it too late now. I really, really wanted to go on a foreign mission. I oh. wanted to go overseas. I wanted to speak a foreign language. Uh -huh. And I thought, because I want to do that, I'm not going to. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got a, good, a great mission. I mean, that's, <laughs> so when I opened it great. and I read that, I thought, oh, I'm... I didn't get what I deserve. I got what I wanted. <laughs> I know that sounds bad, though. It sounds mean. Did the language uh, come easy for you when you went to Germany, or was it hard? Or The language wasn't much of a challenge at all. Okay. Um, I credit that largely to my German teacher in high school. I think German was one of the hardest classes I took in high school, and I took it for three years. And she was, um, she was very intense. Uh -huh. uh, we, um, we had to learn a lot more German than any of the other foreign languages had to do. At the time, I really didn't like it. But looking back, I realized that it made the mission a breeze. Um, in fact, I think, my, I think my first companion in the field was a bit frustrated with me because he really struggled with German. And I think... Um, he had overcome that and was, he'd become quite proficient at German. And I think he was looking forward to having a greenie that he could mentor. And I think he felt disappointed <laughs> that on day one, he even told me on day one, he said, I don't think you need any help. <laughs> so the language wasn't a challenge. I always thought it would be, but it really wasn't. I was blessed. Good. So what was a challenge on your mission? That's a good question. Um, I found that the things I thought would be hard about mission service were not hard at all. The things I didn't expect were very challenging. Uh, the most challenging thing on my mission was having companions that didn't want to be there. Mm. Um, not all of my companions were that way, but some of them were very challenging um, I had one companion. I loved him. He was a great guy. He, he had a wonderful personality, but, uh, we would go out for a few hours in the morning and he was getting ready to go home. He was very close to the end. He was my third companion. He, um, a good guy, spoke the language well. He was a good teacher. People really liked him. But after about two hours of going out and working in the morning, we would go back to the apartment and he would sleep for about three hours. Hmm. <laughs> As a young missionary, it ate me up inside. I felt horribly guilty. I remember hearing many talks at conferences, not, not 
general conferences, but zone conferences or even in the MTC about how junior companions can make a huge difference in a companionship and junior companion can speak up, a junior companion can lead a companionship on the right path. And I remember thinking, I don't know what to do about this guy. He's a great guy. He's a good teacher, but we're sleeping through the afternoon. He is. He's sleeping through the afternoon. Um, so I had an interview with the mission president, and I I felt bad, but I mentioned that to the mission president. And he said, oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I know. He's a good guy, and so are you, and don't feel bad. Huh. Just be patient with him. Um and take advantage of that time and learn. Huh. Uh, well, shouldn't I try to get him to go out and do some work? He said, if you feel prompted, but I don't feel that that's right for him right now. Huh. Oh, and I felt better. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had another companion who uh, did have some significant fl- conflicts with other companions and um, who'd even had some near violent outbreaks, even with locals, not not, lo- not locals, but non-missionaries. Mm-hmm. And um, I got assigned to work with him because my mission president told me that I-, I think you can handle this guy. Again, your job isn't to change him. Your job is to do as much work as you can, but try not to let him get into trouble. And that was very stressful. <laughs> It's very stressful. Were all of your companions North Americans? Yes. Yes, they were. Were there any missionaries in your mission that were from Germany? There were a few. Um, There weren't a lot, but there were a few. Um, I didn't get to spend a whole lot of time around very many of them. And we also had a few from Switzerland, a few from Italy, and my favorites were the few from England. They were so fun to talk to. It's just some I could listen to them talk all day. Yeah, their accent. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at your mission as a whole, how would you summarize the things that you learned or how it developed you? Um, well, one thing I would say was that part of the world was very, very difficult. It, it wasn't a mission where you can thrive on seeing a lot of people join the church. Mm-hmm. And so I, I remember this old, I don't know, story or parable, maybe parables, the word of a man who was told by God to push on this rock and to push on it and to push on it. And he pushed on it over and over and over, but it didn't move um, until he got frustrated. And uh, so in despair, he went back to God and told him that he'd been doing what he was told but the rock wouldn't move. And um, God told him, I didn't ask you to move the rock. I asked you to push on it. Sorry, I tend to cry when I talk about things like this. So <laughs> forgive me. Um, I'm not crying. Um, I kind of felt like Germany was like that. I felt like we were pushing a lot, um, but not seeing things really move. And that's not really true. I did see things move, but not in large quantities. Slower pace there. It was very, we, I was told that we were the second lowest baptizing mission in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I think number one, I think at the time was Austria. So that made uh, German speaking countries are just not <laughs> moving very, not moving very fast. So I, what I would say was being in Germany as a missionary, um, 
was you had to base the the peace in your heart, the knowledge that you're doing the right thing. You had to base it on your relationship with with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, and not on measurable things like baptisms or even even discussions taught Mm -hmm. because there'd be sometimes weeks before you could really even say you really even taught a discussion Mm -hmm. doesn't mean we didn't teach it just means well we didn't formally deliver a discussion this week because all we did was randomly run into strangers and try to talk with them yeah (laughs) so you return back to swan valley ward and inspire you gave a wonderful homecoming, homecoming talk to inspire, inspire the younger, inspired boys. younger it was, generation. It was the best homecoming talk <laughs> ever given, ever in the history of that. And then so what's uh, what was next? Back to school? Yep, I went back to school, back to Idaho State. Um it was it was a stressful time too. It was nice to be home. It was really nice to be home. Mm-hmm. But it was time to start uh making myself look like a good candidate for medical school. And uh, I didn't do much of that as a freshman before my mission because you got a mission in front of you. It doesn't seem like anything really matters. But mm-hmm. then when the mission's over, oh, well, I guess these things matter. So I went back to Idaho State, and um, I really enjoyed being in college for the most part. But I started attending these pre-health professions meetings because I had already decided I wanted to be a physician and that very first meeting I attended just broke my heart. It was, um, there were a lot of people there. And the advisor spoke to us and started off by telling us how, how among all of us here, only a handful of us are actually going to medical school. Mm-hmm. And the rest of us are going to have to think of something else to do. So kind of a reality check. It was very disheartening. And, you know, I don't know these people, they don't know me, but you start to think, is it me? Is it me? Uh, how, how do I, I don't dare believe that I'm one of those few that's going uh-huh. because these people look really confident and I don't feel at all confident. I don't know what I'm doing. Huh. Um, what made you want to go into medical school? Let me ask that. Question. That's a good, <laughs> I still haven't figured that out. <laughs> I, part of it was my mother had been around healthcare so much and I had been able to interact with some doctors in that context. And at the time, probably more when I was a young, young kid, I had this idea that doctors were the smartest people on the planet. (laughs) They were smarter than everyone else. And I wanted to be smart. I wanted to be one of the smarter people. I don't want to be the best, but I want to be among the best. (laughs) And I thought, well... I want to be super smart. That's, I better be a doctor because that's, those are the super smart ones. I know better now. (laughs) Um, The other side of it was my father, he had majored in biology in college and he was a game warden. And of course we cleaned up a lot of dead animals and uh, he was also a hunter. And so, you know, we'd see some dead animals in that context and the science of life, the biology, the zoology, to me was intriguing. I, I thought I like bones and I don't like blood so much, but I like bones and I like muscles and I like brains and I, I like I want to I want to be smart and I want to be smart about that. Yeah. And 
uh, and, and probably the third element that goes into that was my uncle, my mother's brother, was an orthopedic surgeon. And whenever we'd run into him, he just seemed to have everything figured out. You know, looking back, you realize, okay, well, he probably didn't. But it, when you're a kid, yes, what you think. Yeah. He's got everything figured out. Well, I want to have, I want to be smart. I want to have everything figured out. And I want to work with bones and muscles and sure. Although you're off into medical school. There's no reason to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a little discouraged initially, but you stuck stuck with it. I stuck with it. Um, I, I would say that there was quite a bit of prayer and pondering. And kind of like the Book of Mormon thing, it, the answer was, you already know. <laughs> and don't... I also kept getting the feeling, don't pay attention to them. Yeah. Because they don't... You don't really need them. Not, not oh, it's not you're better than them. It's That's not why you're here. Yeah. You're not here to listen to those voices. You're here to do something else. Yeah. Um, so I learned what I had to learn and uh, stopped paying attention. And so I basically stopped going to those meetings because I found that they were really just discouragement sessions. Huh. Um, I just found out what I had to get done and I arranged my the next three years to get those things done. And once I kind of got to that point, I never really let go of the anxiety until I was accepted. But after that, it was a lot better because I'm, I'm just a mind your own business kind of guy and I don't need to listen to those voices. Yeah. And so where did you get into school at? I got a few places. Um, of course, Idaho at the time did not have a medical school. Uh -huh. I think they have one now in Boise, but they didn't have one when I was there. Uh -huh. So uh, the two big programs that we look at as Idaho residents, we look at University of Utah because it's only a few hours away, and they have some Idaho seats that they reserve for Idaho residents. Mm -hmm. University of Washington holds 18 seats for, at least at the time, they held 18 seats for Idaho residents. Mm -hmm. So you, you look at those, but then you start looking just anywhere else. And they didn't have a lot of resources at the university, but you, know, you could ask around enough and find out where students tend to go. And it became clear that they, they never go to California. They just can't get in anywhere in California. Uh, but look at Nevada, look at Chicago, look at Des Moines, look at several places. And um, so I applied to many places. I had one, I, I had what I called the what if school. I wanted to apply to one that was just completely out there and unrealistic just to see. And that was Stanford. <laughs> I was, I'm going to apply to Stanford because I want to brag one day that I interviewed at Stanford. <laughs> Um, but I, uh, ultimately I was waitlisted at the university of Utah and I was given an offer at a Chicago school, a Nevada school and, uh, university of Nebraska. And I had a few other offers to interview that I didn't accept because I, I got my, uh, I already had a few offers that I decided I was unlikely to pursue those schools with the offers I already had. So what did you ultimately choose? Then? I went with the University of Nebraska, which was a, wasn't a hard decision. I, I, I considered strongly Chicago because my sister was living in Chicago at the time, but I had such a bad time with toll roads when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> and Omaha, Nebraska has no toll roads. So I thought, okay, that's one thing. But the University of Nebraska, the interview there was, they did a really good job of making it seem like this is where you want to go. Huh. Uh, probably 
probably better than any other program. And, and no disrespect to more local programs, but when I interviewed at the University of Washington, their approach was very different from anywhere else I interviewed. Their approach was, you should want to come here, and if you do, um, I, I shouldn't say that, but they thought very highly of themselves. <laughs> I will say that. And they tried to make us feel like we should be honored just to have been asked to interview. Whereas University of Nebraska didn't take that approach. University of Nebraska's approach was, we will train you to be the best doctor that you can be, and this is a you're going to be happy here. Mm. And it was just a very nice campus in a in a nice city, and it was just very, it was just very appealing. And so that's what I went with. It felt it felt good. And that opened up an opportunity for you to meet somebody. It did. Yes, it did. So how did that go? <laughs> I'm trying to think how long to make that story. <laughs> so I went to the University of Nebraska Medical Center as a medical student. Uh, University of Nebraska has several different campuses, but the Medical Center campus is in Omaha, so not in Lincoln where the main campus is. So in Omaha... Uh, for whatever reason, I I did not want to attend a single... There is a singles ward in the city of Omaha, and I just was not interested in going there. Uh, I just wanted to attend the local family ward where I lived. Um, so I did. I attended it for the first year, and it, for the most part, it was good, but I was given a very, very, very stressful calling, and that calling ended up taking far more time than I feel like I could rightly give it. I, I, it just didn't feel good. It, it was kind of a negative experience, unfortunately, for me. So, and when I went, I went home for a very brief summer. The summers weren't very long. The, 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 the semester went late and started early. So I came home for a brief time. I did a rotation in Idaho and then I had a little bit of time off and then had to go back. And uh, my bishop at the time told me that my calling would be waiting for me when I got back. <laughs> And something told me I, I, I can't go back. So something told me I can't, I can't go back to that ward. It's, it's too much. I hate to say that, but it was true. So I decided I was going to attend the singles ward. Hmm. And that was the reason I was going to attend the singles ward, not for any other reason. I certainly didn't go to a singles ward with the intention of meeting somebody. So I went to the singles ward my second year, basically to run away from my... <laughs> family ward <laughs> and when I was there so one thing to know is uh, the University of Nebraska does not have very many students that are members of the church there is a university in Omaha called Creighton University that has a fair number of dental students and medical students that are LDS so this ward had several students from that program um, I never saw myself dating or marrying a a doctor, I thought that would be too boring. What would we talk about? We'd talk about <laughs> healthcare, which why would I, why would I do that? Um, so I really didn't go and mingle with other medical students or dental students. But when I was there, I noticed there was a, a girl that I thought I'd seen at the medical center at the campus, but I knew she was not a medical student. I assumed that she was either a PA student or a physical therapy student or a nursing student. I, I wasn't sure, but I saw her every now and then in passing. And I had seen her at this 
ward. And so my assumption at the time was that she's probably from Utah because that's where they're all from. And she's probably scared because she's in this big, scary city of Omaha all by herself. (laughs) And I did not approach her with the thought of getting to know her and maybe forming a dating relationship. I simply approached her to let her know that I was also at her school. And if she needed help, she can reach out to me because I assumed that she was alone and scared in the big city of Omaha. Hmm. So I met her, I introduced myself and it turns out she's from Nebraska. So, Oh, okay. Well, she's not scared and lonely in the big city of Omaha. (laughs) She's a local. She was in physical therapy school. Um, so we kind of became friends and then there was a dance coming up and I, at the time I had this calling, I was, I think it was a made up calling. (laughs) I was called as an assistant to the bishopric. So my job, I was, I would attend bishopric meetings and the bishop would give me a list of names. He'd say, I want to hear from these people. I want them to speak in sacrament meeting, uh, within the next three months. And so my job was to find people to give prayers and to assign talks. So kind of like an executive secretary. Kind of like that. People really weren't excited about seeing me because <laughs> no one I'd approach. It was for an assignment. Um, well, one of the counselors in the bishopric basically lectured us and told us that it is our responsibility as priesthood holders to ask a young lady to this dance. Mm. And if we don't ask a young lady to this dance, we are not doing our jobs. We're not fulfilling our obligations. And he made me feel really bad because I wasn't going to ask anybody to this dance. I've never been one to date just for the sake of dating. And so I thought about it and I said, well, there's that one girl. Her name is Catherine. I guess if I have to ask someone, I guess I'll ask her. So I was super, super scared. And I started to think about it and I couldn't sleep at night and I I don't know if I was just feeling bad because of the counselor or if I was feeling the spirit or what I was feeling, but I thought, okay, fine. I will ask this girl and get it over with because I did like her, but uh, I didn't see this as a true dating opportunity. So one day after our sacrament meeting and we're going to Sunday school, I ran into her in the hallway and I looked at her with real serious eyes and I motioned her to come into the foyer where we could have some privacy. And I was, my mouth was dry and I was probably trembling a little bit. And she looked at me like something was wrong because she could see that something was seriously wrong. So I pulled her in the foyer and I, it was probably something like this. Will you go to the dance with me? <laughs> and she said, no. <laughs> and she said, no, I'm already going with someone. Oh. And I thought, oh, okay, that's fine. That's fine. And, and of course, my mind at the time thought, okay, now it's just going to be weird. So I'll never talk to this girl again because now she'll think I'm just really weird. But it didn't turn out that way. Instead, we went into Sunday school and she motioned for me to sit by her. I just asked her to a dance and she said, no, I'm going with someone else. But here, sit by me in Sunday school. Oh, I did not expect that. I mean, to her, that was probably nothing. To me, that was everything. Uh Uh, Because I realized we were still friends. I thought after that, we, oh yeah, we can't talk anymore. (laughs) <laughs> um, so basically it started as a, as a friendship and she'll still laugh about that time I pulled her into the foyer to ask her to a dance because I looked so scared um, and then after a while I started to suspect that well okay well maybe she has a calling in the war I should have known because I was part of the bishopric I should have known what callings were but I, I didn't 
I thought, well, maybe she has a calling in the ward where she's befriending me because she needs me to do something. Maybe that's why she's being nice to me. I, it never occurred to me she's being nice to me because she's a, a nice person. She's a good person. <laughs> but she's up to something. She's, she's, got, she's, got, she's got a motive for this. It turns out she's just a really good person. And um, we started just talking more. And eventually it took another friend to confront both of us individually and say, are you dating Catherine? And she asked Catherine, are you dating Morgan? And we both didn't really know. So we confronted each other and we agreed right then and there that, okay, we're dating. <laughs> had you been on a real date yet? Um, yes, we'd been on a few dates. Okay. And we even had a few dates that really stand out as like, I think that was the moment I fell in love. But, you know, <laughs> I was so inexperienced that I... Yeah. I wasn't going to talk about it. I wasn't going to bring it up. What was your first... I thought it would just so... I thought it would come organically and natural, but then you get to this weird place where I don't know if we're... I don't know if we're dating. Are we dating? Are we not dating? <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first official date? So our first official date, um, interestingly, I took her to a Harry Potter movie. Oh. And I've always liked the Harry Potter movies probably because of that. I thought that was a brilliant idea. I found out later from her that that's probably not the best idea for a date because there's not a whole lot of talking between you. <laughs> but again, I have a movie background. That's what we did. That uh -huh. that to me is that to me is where you relax. That's your love language. Yeah, to, watching a movie with someone that is <laughs> that's family right there. Yeah. So I loved it. We also went to this restaurant, and she loves this story. She'll tell this one all the time. Um, when it came time to pay the bill. I offered to pay the bill. I felt like that was the gentlemanly thing to do. She told me, no, no, no. Because in, in, in all honesty, she's the one who asked for the date. Oh. She said, no, I asked you, so I will pay for the dinner. And then I said, no, I, I'll, I'll pay for it. And she insisted, no, I'll pay for it. And I have an allowance for that. So I let her pay. And I paid for the movie and the popcorn. She paid for <laughs> dinner. But she's pointed out frequently since then... I made her pay for dinner. <laughs> She's not letting you forget She it. doesn't let anyone forget that. <laughs> so what was it that attracted you to Catherine? What are some of the characteristics that you admire in her? It's hard to put it in words, but it's the way she talks to me, the way she talks to everybody. She, she looks you in the eye and she seems genuinely interested in who you are and what you're about. And she wants to know what you're doing and there's just something very contagious about that. She's fun to talk to. And, and, and she, I don't know, she, um, she made me feel like I was worthwhile. I not that, not made, that people she, hadn't, but she makes you feel like she cares about you. Yeah. And then it turns out she really does. Like she, and she, she does. She, she's, she's just not, that nice. She's not manipulative and she's not faking it. She's not trying to get something from you. She, she's, genuinely a people person you so, know i'm more of like a cat i, I kind of live my life and just ignore people and do my own thing and don't interrupt me i'm doing this and she's more like a dog she's like hey when are you coming home hey <laughs> hey i want i want to be around you i want to be around you so she doesn't have that secret calling in the ward to be nice to everybody huh no she's no just, that's she's, just her natural she's genuine natural yeah. thing well, that's good so how long did this take for you to get married Boy, I think I never, it wasn't long. It wasn't long. I remember 
I had a conversation with her and I really wanted to make sure that she didn't misunderstand it. But we were having a serious conversation about our relationship and I, my, my, my philosophy was always, I'm really not interested in dating just for the sake of dating. Um, I would never date someone if I knew I would not marry that person. If, if I was in a relationship with someone that I just knew I will never marry this person, then there's no reason to continue dating this person. I'm not saying, and I made sure that she understood this, I'm not saying that I'm dating you because I plan to marry you. I'm saying if I, if I knew I wouldn't marry you, I wouldn't continue dating. And so I needed to know if she felt the same way, because if she knew that she wasn't going to marry me, then I kind of wanted to stop. And I, I, and I hadn't known her very well and I wasn't very good at communicating back then because part of me still thought she probably has these big aspirations and I would just be in the way. Like I saw her as someone who wants to move to Madagascar for a year <laughs> or she wants to backpack across Europe or she wants to go do this thing or she wants to get involved in some research team in Antarctica and a relationship with a guy isn't going to isn't going to help that. And so she's going to go do that. And when she does, I'm going to be left alone. And I just wanted to be clear that if, if you already know that this isn't going to go anywhere, we, we should stop. If you, if you can see yourself marrying me, I'm not saying we're going to get married, but if you can see yourself marrying me, I'd like to continue. But if you don't, I want to stop. That's, that's the impression I was trying to give her. Mm -hmm. She still tells people, Oh, he knew he wanted to marry me. Like, <laughs> after two months. <laughs> um, and it, her answer surprised me because she said, yeah, I could marry you. <laughs> We're not engaged. We're not getting married, but right. okay, this can continue. Making progress. Yeah. Um, but it didn't take much long. It didn't take long after that um, to where, no, it makes sense to get married. And I didn't have that. I really, I didn't ever see myself getting engaged quickly. But um, we basically started dating um, like February or March approximately of that year. She'd probably say it's different. But we were married by that August of that same year. So you were just starting your third year of medical school when yes, you got married? Yes, I was early in my third year of medical school. So we met in my second year and got married in my early third year. And she was in the midst of her PT training. Yes. And physical therapy school is three years. So she was a year <clears throat> behind me, but we were both set to graduate at the same time. Okay. That's good timing. Yeah. That yeah. was good timing. So after graduation, you went residency where? I, again, I spread my wings and I flew to Lincoln, Nebraska, oh. 50 miles away. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent, she's from Nebraska. So when I went to medical school, I... I liked Omaha. I liked the University of Nebraska. Uh, but when I started, I didn't necessarily think I would stay there. I thought, well, residency could take me anywhere. Yeah. The fact, though, that I'd gotten married to a Nebraskan who had family in Nebraska, all of a sudden, I now have family in Nebraska, yeah. which I didn't have when I moved there. But now I've got family in Lincoln. I've got family in Kearney. Those are you know, two of the towns that family lived in. It made sense, and I chose family medicine, so there's not, at least in my opinion, there's not a huge reason to look far and wide for a good family medicine program because there are really good family medicine programs right there. 
it made sense. So I looked at programs that were pretty close. And she had some more training to do or uh, was there an yeah, internship with PT it. or? No, uh, as soon as she graduated, she was ready to get a job. Okay. Oh. So yeah, all she, of that was part of her school. And she and was able her, to get that there at Lincoln then? She did, yeah. Oh, okay. There were plenty of jobs. So she got a, she got her first job in Lincoln and I got my residency in Lincoln. So we occasionally crossed paths. Yeah, mm-hmm. busy time. There were three hospitals we worked at. She worked out of one hospital and I worked out of three. So occasionally I'd find myself in the same hospital. Uh-huh. And then from Lincoln after residency, you went to North Dakota? South Dakota. South Dakota. <laughs> yeah. Spread they're my both wings the same, aren't they? They're the same. <laughs> well, they're not technically the same. Uh, I used to say that no matter how bad life seems, we could be in North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when was your first uh, child born? Uh, we had our first son, Leo. We decided to start the family around the time of graduation and it timed out almost perfectly. Now, looking back, to be honest, I can't quite remember why we decided that other than uh, Catherine wanted to work, you know, she got her degree, she wanted to work as a physical therapist for some time. Um, And we were still kind of, none of us had this notion that once you have kids, you're going to stay home or once you have kids, you're going to get childcare and still work. We, 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 didn't, we didn't know. We, we, we didn't pretend to know what we were going to do. But it, we did start to lean towards, well, when I graduate residency and I take a job as a full physician, it makes sense for her to at least stay home for the initial phases of having a young baby at home. And then, of course, once we did that, it made sense, well, not just stay home. She... I left that kind of up to her. I mean, it's up to us, but it never felt it never felt right for her to go and work while we had a young baby at home. So, uh-huh. so I think for that we decided let's start our family when when we graduate or when I graduate, I should say, from residency. So we were in Lincoln and started our family right before I graduated. So I've got pictures of my graduation with me holding this little tiny baby. Oh, he came a little early, so that kind of messed us up a little bit. <laughs> Way to go, Leo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so he was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, right before we moved. Uh, and then and looking back, that was a lot of change at once. For her to go from working full-time to being a full-time mom, for me being a resident to being a staff physician, in a new state, a new town, new house, farther away from family. It was a lot of change really quickly. And then eventually you made it here to Anacortes. Yes. So what were your first impressions of the Anacortes area when you first came here? I'm probably going to say the same thing I'm assuming everyone says, and that is the stunning scene of nature. So where we lived in South Dakota was Great Plains, and there's some beauty to be seen there, but it doesn't change. It, it just goes on and on and on. And interestingly, in, in that part of South Dakota, there aren't a lot of trees. There's just clumps of trees here and there, but a lot of open prairie with a lot of wind. And so to come out here, it reminded me a lot of where I grew up, and it was just wonderful to see so many trees again. <laughs> but... What really drew me here was the ocean. I say it's ocean. Some people say, no, it's not ocean. It's the Salish Sea. It's not the ocean. I say, no, there's whales and there's octopi and <laughs> there's salt water. There's ocean. It's ocean. 
Yes, ocean. Um, how did you find out about Anacortes from South Dakota? Well, we came to a conclusion in South Dakota that we had to go somewhere. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that. One of those reasons was, like I mentioned, the nature scene in South Dakota wasn't very appealing to us. And having two little kids at home and my wife being home with them alone a lot of the time, we, we felt like we were starved to get outdoors and to get outdoors in an in a place where you want to be outdoors. Because uh, walking around on the prairie isn't really that appealing. So we wanted to, we decided let's go somewhere that people go to on purpose when they want to go outside. So we looked at a number of locations basically out in wet. We did look at the Black Hills in South Dakota, which is a very nice place. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately we were drawn a lot further west. We even looked at Hawaii. We visited the Big Island and I was very close to taking a job there because it was a lovely place, mm. but there were too many things to overcome that just didn't sit right. <laughs> but um, we found Anacortes basically from a flyer I got in the mail. I don't know how mm. these companies know it, but once you've been at your job for three years, start getting you start flyers. getting flyers for jobs. They, they know that yeah. a, a lot of you are going to want to change jobs after three years. Especially and, in South Dakota. Especially in South Dakota. <laughs> so I got this random flyer. Uh, with a picture of a sailboat and the sailboat was kind of heeling to one side and you can see this mountain in the back. I think it was a picture of us. It was. It was probably our boat. <laughs> it was, uh, I think there's a picture of the Murrays on that boat. <laughs> and I think in big letters it said something like, a sound opportunity. Oh. Was, Ooh. <laughs> their advertising is working. So I contacted them and found out, I, and I, I thought the town was pronounced Anacourt. I thought the S was silent. Oh. <laughs> So this was just one of a handful of places. I say, oh, I've never heard of that, but let's look into it. And it looks like, oh, it's an island. How oh. exciting is that? Just like Hawaii. Just, just, just like Hawaii. <laughs> it's the same. And I thought, oh, and, and I, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but um, I've the ocean, you know, being a having a zoology background, love of animals, love of animal science, I've always felt like... The ocean is a cool, cool, cool place, but I'd never been around it. Mm. Just the ocean has never been a part of my background. And I felt like I would love to be close to it because I feel like I feel like I'm supposed to be. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of exciting to think, well, not only is this an outdoorsy place with trees and it's not just flat, but hey, there's ocean right there. Yeah. So I was like, well, let's put that on our list of places we're going to look into. And when you talk to the folks at the hospital and the job opportunity, it seemed like, oh, that, that seems that we should look into that place. So it worked out. It did. Catherine at first had some serious doubts because she was very worried about cloud cover and rain. Hmm. But when we visited, she did say, mm, I like this place. I think this place would be okay. Hmm. <laughs> and how long have you been here now? Um, I will be seven years this summer, I, I believe, okay. if I've done the math right. Okay. 2015, summer 2015. Okay. Um, what do you love most about the Anacortes Ward? I think it's 
our former bishop. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Um, He'll have to pay you later for that one. I'm expecting it. I'll wait for it. No, um, I don't. I, I don't really know other than to say, um, I love the. I, I feel like we have genuine friendships with with the other families in the ward that have kids. Not that, not that the other families that don't have kids or maybe have older kids, not that they're any less, less friendly or less worthwhile of our friendship, but I, having families that are in our same situation with kids and having these genuine friendships with them, that to me is probably my favorite thing. Mm -hmm. And there's several of those in the ward here. Yeah, some shared experiences. Yes, that's a good word for yeah. it. That is, that's it's actually very powerful, I think. Um, what do you feel like is in your adult life has nurtured your testimony during your during your adult years? Again, that great former bishop. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> the, the, our former bishop has shaped my testimony. Um I, I guess as kind of a generic answer, I would say having children has to me, that's an adult thing. You know, before we had kids, we were married for five years before we started our family. And those were really, really fun, really fun five years. In fact, at the time I became a triathlon addict and I became a, a gear addict. I was always looking at bikes. I was always looking at running shoes, wetsuits, everything and anything that was related to triathlon racing, I was learning about. I was learning about the pros. I was reading about their their races and everything they would do. And I and I was an Ironman. I mean, Ironman, not not the superhero, but the race. That was the life I wanted, and I found in my job at the time that I I could live this life as a physician, as a husband, and as a triathlete. And it was a blast. And we used to we used to travel based on races. My wife, of course, is a distance runner, and that wore off on me. I, I couldn't help it. I had to investigate that, and I kind of fell in love with endurance sports. I was never very fast, but I could do long races, and I had a lot of fun. And I focused on that a lot. And when we had children, especially having children that have some struggles that was very adult to me. That was, I'm not saying that triathloning wasn't important or wasn't, doesn't have its place, but that was the first time in a long time where it was no longer about me. And it's not just me. Oh, I got to go and have a job and earn money so that I can take care of these little people. But it's like, no, I need to do my part in this circle of family so that we all grow together because, um, you know, maybe I can inspire my kids with triathlon, but that's really not where I am right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I guess I don't know if that answers the question appropriately, but no, it doesn't. I think what you're saying, maybe put some words in your mouth. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> what I think I hear you saying is that, um, becoming a father, especially to children who have some special needs, uh, kind of focused you on what's really important in life. Mm -hmm. And that, in turn, uh, 
maybe brought you closer to Heavenly Father and to more of a dependence on Him? I think definitely. I, I, I'm glad you put those words out there. Well, I think that what's what you're saying. Um, and like I, I kind of joked earlier how I cry a lot, and that's actually no joke. I cry a lot. Yeah. And um, I think you've sat in on when I used to teach some Sunday school to youth. Yeah. Uh, I wish I was different, but it's not. I pretty much cried every every time I teach well, a lesson. You, you and feel I, the spirit. I mean, I've been in, in your lessons, and you bring the spirit <laughs> to the lessons. The kids may not understand it, but I did. Well, I got it. That, that didn't happen until I had kids. That having kids made me a crier, yeah. for sure. And I, 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 it's not that it made me a crier, but I think it, it, it changed my spiritual relationship with God. Yeah, changed your priorities significantly. Yeah, and I really relate to that. I, I have had that exact same experience in my oh, good. life. So makes me feel better. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna start using the word weep. I weep. I weep. <laughs> it's better. Okay. Do you have a favorite hymn? Uh, poor wayfaring man of grief. And why? Because uh, if we sing it, if we sing all the verses, then it cuts into Sunday school time. <laughs> That's a joke. Not true. It is my favorite hymn. It's my favorite hymn. I, I can't really say specifically why, other than the message is... Beautiful words. Really powerful. Yeah. I can't say that that's who I am, but that's who I want to be. Okay. And uh, what type of music in general do you enjoy? I like rock music. What kind of rock I music? I really like rock music. I like, in fact, rock is too soft. Uh, I like metal. Heavy metal. Heavy metal. Okay. Which is funny. Uh, when, when did that start, by the way? <laughs> is that high school? No. Did they allow that in Swan Valley? Well, they tried not to. That started in 1988. <laughs> um. I don't know if this is an interesting story. So um, my parents are both musical. My mom is a very gifted piano player and organist. Dad's a guitar player. And they used to be in a band and they would play some of the old 70s rock. They would go around to bars and play with this band. Of course, they didn't drink anything. Um, and they would play things like Dire Straits and Fleetwood Mac. And they thought they were really cool. And mm -hmm. my dad had this really amazing blue leisure suit. <laughs> <laughs> and he had this guitar that looked almost exactly like the guitar that Marty McFly plays in the Back to the Future. <laughs> Just this big red thing. And so my parents are already into that scene. They like music. My dad, for a while, liked country, which I never could grasp. Sorry for all the country fans that are listening. No, no disrespect. Anyway, the story goes... My older sister, so I have two older sisters, my, uh, the second born, the second oldest sister, most of us would probably say that she is our cultural advisor. <laughs> if she says something's cool, it's cool. If she says something's not cool, it's not cool. So when the impressionable younger brothers are going to follow what she says. She's kind of like California for the rest of us. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so she's the one that got the big hair, the big bangs. Uh, she's, she was, she, to this day, she loves the eighties, Duran Duran. I mean, she's eighties, everything. Anyway, well, one day she brings home she, a cassette tape from the band Metallica. <clears throat> I'd never heard of them. I didn't, I hadn't listened to them. It wasn't anything we'd heard. We, we listened to music a lot at home. We had this big stereo system with these big speakers and it had like a record player on the top. And then there was a cassette deck and eventually we added a CD 
player to it. We were really getting fancy. We listened to a lot of things like Elton John. My mom liked Linda Ronstadt, which I could never quite embrace. Um, no offense, my parents did not like the Beatles. Beatles were just nowhere to be found. I hadn't ever heard the Beatles because my parents would not listen to the Beatles. I don't know why. It just they wouldn't. Deprived, yeah. It's probably because they lived in Idaho. Probably because they lived <laughs> I'll tell them that. I'll tell them. <laughs> um, anyway, so my sister brings home this Metallica cassette. And uh, again, in my upbringing, we, we mind our own business. I mean, I... A lot of people, when you hear the same story, they think, oh, you don't, don't listen to that. That's bad. Don't listen to that. That's bad. In my family, that was, what's that? I don't know. I mind my own business. What is Metallica? I don't know what that is. So we start playing this. And of course, my parents are there. My parents are listening to this stuff too. So you think, okay, if my parents are here, then this we're going to get some guidance on this. Is this good? We start playing this Metallica cassette. And I couldn't describe how I felt. I felt... This, I can't help but smile. This is fast. This is aggressive. This is high pitched. This is, this is exciting. I feel excited. I like this. Um, and then we get to the second song. And, oh, this is even better. And then we get a few songs. Okay, I don't like that one. But we listened to this and I thought, what is this? This is great. My sister's, yeah, this is what everyone's listening to. This is the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, whatever it is, I'm a fan. And she goes, it's called heavy metal. Okay, well, I like heavy metal. <laughs> I like heavy metal. That's what I like. So, um, of course, I don't have a stereo system. I don't have any cassettes of my own. Um, my sister has a massive collection of 80s pop, but this was the first time I'd heard heavy metal and never occurred to me that people would have an issue with this. Never occurred to me that anyone would look at this and say, that's bad. Uh, and my parents say, yeah. That's pretty good. So um, I'm overnight, I'm a Metallica fan. I don't even know what Metallica is. I'm a fan. Uh, Not long after that, we take a trip to California where my uncle lives with his kids. And, you know, once we go there, little kids and big kids can't hang out in in the same room with each other. So my older sister, he's hanging out with my older cousins in their room and little kids are not allowed in there. So, okay, fine. We'll go do our little kid things. So she's talking to the cousin and she's telling him, have you heard this Metallica? And he says, wait, at least this is how I understand. Maybe the conversation didn't go this way. She goes, if you like that, wait till you hear this. So he plays her an Iron Maiden cassette. (laughs) And then next thing I know, she's playing this for me saying, if you like Metallica, imagine Metallica multiplied by six. Just kidding. Not... (laughs) And so she plays this Iron Maiden cassette and she was right. I hear this for the first time and I think, okay, yeah, I'm a fan of this. This is, this is really high pitched. This is not nearly as aggressive. It's just high pitched. It's exciting. It's elevating. It's, it's energized. I, I'm a fan, whatever this is, sign me up. And there's also a zombie on the picture. There's a, there's like a futuristic Star Wars looking zombie with a, with a laser gun. I'm like, this is, I'm a fan. So I became a fan. And of course my parents, they listen, they say, yeah, that's pretty good. So, uh, in 1988, I became a fan of these bands. Kept up the passion and you actually like to play the guitar and, and sing this music. Too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I've, 
amassed kind of a ridiculous guitar collection. I did follow my dad's footsteps and I um, started playing guitar in fifth grade. So this was only a few years after I discovered this style of music. So I started playing his Marty McFly guitar <clears throat> and uh, kept that up for a number of years and eventually was able to get some of my own gear and started making the real sounds I was going for. And um, eventually I was get got to the point where I could record my own music and I've got drums and basses and I can throw together entire songs. And You're a one-man band. Yeah, yeah. That's and um, cool. it's really, really fun. And it's a big part of, it, it's a big part of what I'm into. It's, it's what I do with my spare time. Yeah. And, and actually very talented. I've heard him sing. He's got a very good uh, rock lead voice. Oh, you're, lead you're too nice. Singer voice. No, you <laughs> really do. So someday we're going to have to hear it. <laughs> Probably not in a sacrament meeting, but. Not a sacrament meeting. It's not, yeah, it's not sacrament material, but. Okay, a couple more questions. Um, who's been a mentor or someone you look up to to pattern your life after? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I, I'm probably going to give a similar answer to what other people have said, but I would say my parents. I don't, I don't think I have anything new other than to say, you know, my, my parents are not in medicine, but... Um, I, I think my parents' general approach to life to foster love in the home and not necessarily meaningless expectations that may not be applicable in this person's life. I mean, I don't... I hope I don't... Um, I hope I don't send a message to my children that I expect them to serve missions or else they're not loved, or I expect them to go to college or else they're not loved. I, I don't want that to be part of their upbringing. It wasn't part of my upbringing. And I, I would like to think that I pattern my life after my parents mm -hmm. in that respect. Uh, in the other respect, uh, one thing, this is a little bit different, but um, as an adult, one thing looking back that I've seen in my parents I never saw before was how much they went without. And I never saw my parents going without anything or giving up anything or sacrificing anything until I became an adult, hmm. until I had kids. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my goodness, like my parents sacrificed a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, that's inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. So I guess I would just, I, my parents. That's, those are good ones. <laughs> okay. I have two final questions. So before I do the final questions, anything that you wanted to talk about we haven't talked about second to last question <clears throat> this is the thought question president oaks taught that the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts what we have done it is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts what we have become the gospel of jesus christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our heavenly father desires us to become so, Morgan, what have you become or what are you becoming? How have you changed over the course of your life? I would hope that I've become someone who acknowledges his weakness and his imperfection before God and someone who can turn everything over to him and to trust him as opposed to saying, well, look at all these wonderful things I've achieved. I'm... I'm doing a good job because really it's not, 
It's not me saving myself. Okay, thank you. And final question, if you could send one message 100 years into the future for your posterity to hear, what would it be? It's almost the same answer. This I thought a lot about this, and um, I guess the message would be that this, this road cannot be taken alone. And what I mean by that is um, we need to embrace Jesus Christ. And when I say embrace Jesus Christ, I don't mean talk about how awesome his teachings are and were, talk about how wonderful his life was, and just really just talk about what a wonderful example he is, but really acknowledge that we can't save ourselves and just really acknowledge that we need him. And without him, we don't make it down this road, that we can't save ourselves. Um, so don't try to go down this road by yourself because uh, there's no other way. He is the way. Okay, thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure listening to your stories, and you were very articulate. Oh, uh, thank you. Express yourself very well, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Of One Heart podcast. We hope you enjoyed getting to know a little better another member of the Anacortes War family. We will be giving everyone the opportunity to be interviewed on the podcast. But if you want to volunteer, please contact Brother or Sister Murray or President Gardner. We may not yet be where we want to be, and we are not now where we will be. I believe the change we seek in ourselves and in the groups we belong to will come less by activism and more by actively trying every day to understand one another. Why? We're building Zion, a people of one heart and one mind.